This is Client Conversations, a podcast from Charles Russell Speechlease. Hello and welcome to Client Conversations. My name is Simon Ridpath and I'm the Managing Partner at Charles Russell Speechlease. I'm here today with Bart Peerless, Senior Partner and one of our Private Client Specialists. Good day, Bart. Hello, Simon. In each episode, we're going to be bringing you an informative and entertaining look at the world of private capital, shedding light on the latest trends in the sector through hearing the stories and experiences of a special client guest. On this episode, we have a real treat for you. We're joined by a guest who is a pioneer in the information technology industry, creating a company where 297 out of her first 300 employees were women, in a time where this was a trailblazing feat. Since then, she's become an influential philanthropist, having established her own foundation and two significant autism charities. She's a successful author, speaker, having one of the most watched TED Talks on YouTube concerning technology, and he's about to produce a multi-part factual television series. But more on her later. To start with, Bart, could you set the scene for us? What's your take on what we're seeing in the world of private capital at the moment, and how does it relate to our guest today? Thank you, Simon. I think the world of private capital reflects the concerns and worries that so many of us have. So clients for their businesses or as individuals and families are focused on cost of living, be that inflation, uh, they're focused on interest rate rises. Uh, as we sit here now, we're just before the November budget statement, and so clients are thinking about what changes may come there, and obviously some of those are being flagged in advance. So clients are looking at what that means for their family balance sheets and what that means for their businesses. But at the same time, at a macro level, I think people are having to think very hard about how the world is changing. Uh, most obviously, of course, there is decarbonisation and the growth of the green economy. But there are some very big geopolitical changes going on at the moment, which are making all of us, I think, wonder about where growth will come over the next years, not simply what types of business, but where in the world, uh, how they make their businesses resilient against some of those geopolitical changes, whether that's supply lines uh, or markets which are changing. So I've never known such a pace of change, which of course throws up opportunities as well as causing anxiety and make, making people think hard about what lies right in front of them right now. So a time of great opportunity, no doubt time of anxiety certainly and I think clients are thinking about all the things that we're thinking about when we look at our family balance sheets. You haven't well. even mentioned information technology which is making such a difference absolutely. to the world. Absolutely that so so Steve that's a very good introduction to you thank you so our guest today is Dame Stephanie Shirley um, uh, I'm just going to say a word about philanthropy before we introduce you more formally Steve because um, one of the themes I've picked up over the last, funnily enough, the last two or three weeks in my meetings as a trustee of various private foundations is how much charities, private grant-making foundations, are now having to step in and make up the shortfall where in the past central government or local authorities uh, would, have, uh, would have really been picking up core funding needs. And it's perfectly clear to me that, that the pace of, of uh, government reducing budgets which support the third sector is only quickening and what and philanth philanthropists want to do is is the other way around that we want to actually do the the piloting of something and if yeah. if it works then let government take over that's immediately opposite of what you're talking about it is it is and i think it's at the moment unfortunately covid having been an incredibly difficult time for many yeah. charities either because they were reliant on 
on uh, paying visitors, whether you're in the arts or whether you're uh, a house that's open to the public heritage charity, or whether because the way in which you provide support to your beneficiaries, if I can put it that way, which meant you simply couldn't help them very yeah. easily in lockdown, has meant that certainly the charity accounts that I've been looking at, where we're providing help, have, have shown that entire, the great bulk of that sector has had a very difficult period mm. coming out of COVID and is now facing, it seems, further government cuts. But Steve, you were quite right to pick me up on information technology and and the, the change that IT is bringing. And we, we might, can we come back to that in a moment? Mm. Because I think Simon's got some questions for you about the way in which our world is changing. Okay. Um, uh, uh, and that means our world as solicitors and, and you and I have discussed that in mm. the past. But I think... Um, you and I have worked together for something like 25 years it now. Is it is. You have the dubious honour, I think, of being the first client I met after I qualified as a solicitor. <laughs> uh, you survived the experience. Um, it's been a very exciting time. And I think as I was reflecting on that before mm -hmm. today, what was interesting was that you came to us at a time in your life when quite a lot of changes were going on. You were starting to withdraw from your business. You were still chairman, I think, but you were less involved in the day-to-day -day running. And for reasons that I'm sure we'll touch on later in the conversation, you were focused on really doing much more in the world of philanthropy, and particularly in the world of autism. So you were, you were seeking new advisors, and very shortly after that meeting, we set up the Shirley Foundation, your, your yeah. grant-giving charitable vehicle. But rather than me give a second-rate potted history of your life. Take us back to the start and, and tell us some more about you. Well, where things start is always very important because it somehow sets the culture for all future activities. And I started in a very entrepreneurial way and have tried to remain innovative as an organisation so that some of the things that I've done have been uh, shock horror type things, um, such as um, trying to take the whole company, by then quite sizable and profitable, um, into uh, co-ownership. Uh, that took me 11 years. What I've learned is most of the things you do in business take, take that sort of time. Um, I, other tasks have taken 11 years to set up my first, second charity, 17 years to set up my first charity. These things are slow and take a lot out of you. The sheer pleasure of moving into the philanthropic world is partly laziness because suddenly you don't have to worry about uh, cash flow and profits and um, because you're spending money. You're giving away money that is, to a certain extent, surplus to requirements. It doesn't actually. I mean, I did become very wealthy, um, and it, it, it doesn't really affect how I live at all, and I've gone on living at much the same sort of modest level as I did before I had a fortune. But I've enjoyed char the charitable side. I've learned a lot from it. Um, your company was very helpful in, in getting me to separate the charitable side, the charitable foundation, from my personal activities. I found that quite difficult because they'd been so closely intertwined. Um, the um, pleasure of giving comes from, in a small way, being able to make the world a better place. 
And I get enormous satisfaction. From, I, I'm much happier as a philanthropist than I ever was in business. There were years in business where I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it, was absolutely obsessed anyway, as I think entrepreneurs have to be. If you haven't got that obsession, you don't stand a chance of surviving in, the, in this sort of somewhat uh, aggressive world of today. Take us back to when you founded your your company. So what 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 drove you to found your company and make it as different as it was? Because it was a revolutionary company yeah. at the time. One of the things that makes made me the laughing stock of the industry was that I didn't really set up the business to make money. Uh, I did eventually make serious money, but the the objective was social. I, I was so fed up and tired of the sort of sexism of um, the work, the two employers that I'd had previously, one public service and one small private service, um, that I really wanted to set up an organisation that was the sort of company that I wanted to work with, which meant flexible, which meant family-friendly, which meant trusting, which meant in, 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 having integrity. Um, Eventually, um, I put all those ideas into a, a, a charter, which took me 18 months to write, sort of to really get it down to one page, what is this company about? So it was a social business rather than a, a commercial business, and that made a lot of difference. Uh, we've just had a reunion uh, for 60 years from the start of my company, which started off called Freelance Programmers. That was exactly what it was. Um, and um, 88 people turned up, so it gives some impression of um, the sort of loyalty that the company engendered because it was on this crusade for women. It started off minute number one in the um, company's annals. Uh, was it, it should be the employment policy uh, to provide jobs for women with children, minute number one. Uh, and after a year or so, I realized that this was not quite right and it became careers for women with children. Mm. Um, and then equal opportunities legislation came in in 1975 and we had to uh, be gender neutral and it was um, careers for um, people with dependents. Yes. Um, and it stayed like that pretty well for many years. Um, when... We were finally taken over. Um, we employed eight and a half thousand people. So we had all those stages of growth from a little company where I had a secretary half, um, Tuesday afternoons, um, uh, and that was all, um, to uh, a, a large corporate. Um, sadly, as the company thrived and became more and more corporate, as obviously it needed to be, um, I enjoyed it less and less. So uh, I really um, have enjoyed as a philanthropist, and I call myself a venture philanthropist because I've set up three, not two charities in the autism field and have been involved in founding other not-for-profits. Uh, and it's really um, very satisfying to employ the, the skills that I learned very painfully in business. I mean, I'm not a natural businesswoman at all. Um, in the charitable sector. So the first charity that I set up, that was the one that took me 17 years to get sustainable, uh, financially and managerially independent of me. 
uh, that was the one that I set up for my um, late son um, and um, as a side issue, you helped me a lot with the various things that you were concerned with having a, a child uh, who was never going to be independent uh, and always was going to need a, a whole lot of support. And so we, for him, we set up, or you helped me set up trusts of uh, various sorts. I set up a trust in Australia and so on. Um, so I diverted into um, looking after the family in a, in a slightly different way. Um, if I could mention his, my, my son Giles is, was profoundly autistic. He didn't speak, he was epileptic. Um, he was hyperkinetic when he was young and then turned into a rather stolid young man. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was a violent and, and a strong young man, so he was not sort of easy to, to rear at all. Um, but he has driven really the, the, the last third of my life because I'm focused on autism. And the lesson that I learned the hard way in business to focus uh, I, I find very easy to apply in the not-for-profit sector because it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's information technology and autism and that's all I know and care about. And it's applying that yes. in, in yeah. every aspect of your life. Yeah. Take us back, having, having talked about, obviously, the, the social purpose of the business, the importance of having that egalitarian message, trying to be an employer that, that dealt with the sexism that was far more prevalent then than perhaps today. What were the challenges for you as a female leader of that business? Were there challenges around business support, um, economic support? What were the attitudes of banks and business backers and suppliers to you? Any, any, any significant change you were able to drive there? Well, as, as a woman, I didn't even try to raise raise any money. Right. Um, it, it, it never really crossed my mind that it was even feasible because women were at that, that time um, second-class citizens, uh, unable to partake in most, in most financial transactions, unable to serve on the stock exchange. Uh, I, I was unable to open the company's bank account without my husband's authorization. It was this was 1962, um, and things were still pretty tough. I've forgotten what your question was. Uh, it, it was it was exactly that sort of scenario, which is yeah. in, the inability to use perhaps more traditional means yes. to support financially and professionally yeah. the business. How did you get around and innovate around those challenges? We got around, one of the big things we, we did was to move salary to purchase ledger. Okay. Um, and that was not particularly popular, uh, but it was feasible. Um, and with our home-based part-time um, mothers with children working from home, um, it was not unattractive to, to be earning at all. So uh, it was a tough way of... Um, paying people because we only paid when the client paid us um, and then there was a, a backup clause if they didn't pay within three months we paid but that got rid of most of the growing company's cash flow problems yes. 
But it took us a long time to get there, and I was even using consultants, outside consultants, to, to help me with that. Um, as I say, I, I don't think I'm a natural in business. I did learn to enjoy it. Um, but the other thing that happened, really, was that um, when I was writing sales promotion letters, and I would be doing so um, six, ten a week, um, these were two organizations that I knew might be potential customers. I'd done a little bit of market research. Um, when I was writing those, I was getting absolutely zero response from them. And I looked at the letter again, it was as good as letters I could find. And my, my late husband suggested that um, uh, I, I drop a cease signing um, with that double feminine, Stephanie Shirley. Um, but rather use Steve Shirley, which is the family nickname. And um, surprise, surprise, the same sort of letters going to the same sort of prospects began to make a difference. And I began to get responses, began to get interviews, began to get proposals, um, and the business took off. It took off very, very slowly, um, for, almost meaningless with inflation now. But in the first year, I. I had it was a ten month year. Um, the company earned seven hundred pounds. I had been earning on salary two thousand before, so it sort of sets it into scale. But it was very very slow yeah. burn. Yes. Um, and um, I mean, it was obviously me that kept it at that very family oriented. Um, not profit-driven, socially-driven. Um, I, I was responsible for that. And it wasn't all honey because some people wanted bigger salaries, they wanted company cars, they wanted all the things that went with, with success. And the company was a success, however modest. Um, it finished up employing 8,500 people, but that was long after I was involved. Steve, you, Steve, you were one of the uh, entrepreneurs who most passionately believed in employee share ownership. And I remember when you first instructed us, uh, one of the first questions you asked was around FI's very significant um, employee share ownership um, vehicle. And you went on to serve as a board director at John Lewis after yeah. you'd, you'd stepped down from FI. Tell us a bit, I can see how that knits in with your belief uh, that you're talking about, but tell us a bit about that and how it worked for the company. Well, I'd set up a trust firm my son Giles by that time. Um, and I was torn between what I needed to do from the family point of view and what the company needed. And I wanted to take the company into 100% co-ownership. And John Lewis was my, my inspiration and model. Um, in fact, it took many, many years because the cost of making that transition fell on me because it was my shares that I was selling or giving to um, the staff. Um, and so uh, it was the speed of progress that was driven by how much cash I'd got. And it was literally dribbling it in, you know, 5,000 here, uh, 50,000 there. Um, and uh, I don't know how long, it, how much it cost altogether. Um, I found it very exciting. I liked doing new things. I was horrified afterwards to find out that everybody else was learning as much as I was, <laughs> but that, um, that's it. it. It certainly had the 
Uh, it was what I want, wanted of the company. It, 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 it seemed the right and proper thing to do. Um, I come from quite modest background and, and it, to give away the company to the people who'd, who'd, who'd made it happen seemed to me um, the right thing to do. And I try, I'm a very dutiful person. Uh, I try to do what is right, what is proper, what is correct, what is honest, what is straight, what is um, transparent. It's interesting that the, the common theme coming through the conversation is that sense of morality and belief in, yeah. in your own set of beliefs, not doing good for the yeah. sheer sake of it, but doing, doing what you think is the right thing to do. And one of your earlier comments intrigued me, which was the point that business was almost secondary. So learning to be a business person was not the motivation for setting up the business in the first place. That was to be the mistress of your own destiny and to be able to do things the way you wanted things to be done and to innovate. And innovation is that common theme. But yeah. Some of innovation comes because you're so ignorant. Um, it, it's innovative creative to me, solutions, but creative solutions, yes. Yes, yes. Um, but it, it, if you weren't driven by um, black ink at the bottom of the ledger, profit and driving for profit, that was a byproduct, at least initially. What was that guiding principle that, that led you to, I mean, you mentioned minute number one earlier. Was it as simple as that or were there other, other aims that kept you focused on? I think it was as simple as, as I was sick and tired of the sexism in the workplace yeah. and I was going to try and build one that I would like to work with and that other women, I guess, would like yeah. to work with and it, that proved to be correct. Um, it was laughed at, uh, not only for its employment policies, but also because we were selling tailor-made software at a time when software was normally given away free with the hardware. And, you know, people just, just laughed, you can't sell software, certainly not from a woman. So, you know, we were breaking down some, some, some big barriers. Innovating, creative solutions yes. being found. Everywhere. I think some creative... It, innovation comes from ignorance um, that um, I think had, I didn't go to university though, I have a maths degree. Um, I think had I gone to university, which I desperately would have liked to, and still, I mean, I had a chip on my shoulder, so I was about 30 because I hadn't made it. Um, but uh, the university somehow teach you how to think. And I don't think I would have been as innovative if I had got that tertiary education that I so craved. And, it, and it's particularly prevalent in technology. If you, you yeah. listen to many tech entrepreneurs today, many of whom were driven by finding a solution to a problem yes. using technology. Rarely does that come from schooled thought. It comes from that free thinking mm. that is built out of people who love to solve a challenge. Mm. Steve, can we talk a bit about your changing relationship with your business, which then led to you, as it were, moving more significantly into yeah. the world of philanthropy? Because I, one thing I've learned from you is you've always focused very much on where you feel you can make a difference. You know, I think you would call yourself a good starter. Yeah. You're very good at getting things to happen and recognize perhaps where then it's best for others to take it forward once it's reached a certain point. And you hinted earlier in the conversation at how 
you know, you're an entrepreneur and how your relationship with the business changed. And that led on to other things. So as it moved from being your business to a global business with ultimately, as you say, 8,000 employees, how did your role change? And, and, and how did that then start the next stage in your life? I overlapped for eight years with the incoming chief executive who was a success, and she was the third chief executive I'd tried. Um, the first two were Ida House and the, the third, Hilary Cropper, um, who was absolutely terrific because she had some of the, much of the culture that I had set. She was in, aligned with that. Um, but she was also much more commercial. She was she she was a corporate lady. She was going to double turn over very quickly. You know, boy, uh, people we didn't know what had hit us really. Um, I found the transition. It was a gradual transition. The overlap with Hillary, which I suppose showed a lack of trust that I still hang around. Um, I kept myself um, away from the mainstream by, for example, taking up the role of the president of the presidency of the British Computer Society, um, the first woman master of the IT livery company. I was doing a lot of outside things, um, starting to speak on behalf of the company, uh, which earned some fees. Uh, and I was working internationally, so to, I was really trying to keep out of the way uh, at the same time, keep a, a beady eye on what was going on. So it wasn't a particularly happy period. But I think that's the sort of transition that had people, probably you, Bart, had warned me was going to happen. Um, I had thought originally that I would just stay with the company as it got bigger and bigger. But in fact, I stayed until I was 60 and then ret literally retired on my 60th birthday. And I thought that was it. Um, I had been very personally hurt by the chairman whom I had appointed um, suggesting that I retire early and I didn't like that idea at all um, but so we, we, we did a deal where um, he gave in on the retirement age and I gave in instead that I would come off the board completely whereas most people stay on as a non-executive board. And I think for me that was a very good thing because once I'd got over the break, um, I, I just see it as an, an outside company. I had the shares for some time. Once it was taken over, I hadn't even got any shares. Uh, I did a year with the takeover company, Steria, uh, but that's all. And so that opened the door to, as you as you disengaged from what was then FI Group and, as you say, it was taken over, and... Uh, your your wealth skyrocketed. There's no oh. other phrase for it. Um, you turned to the next stage in your life. You'd, you'd established the Kingwood Trust, um, uh, which was which which ran homes, including one where Giles lived. Um, but you then you you you're the most significant private donor uh, in the field of autism in the country, possibly oh. in the world. Um, and you then you then focused on that next stage of your life. I don't like to be bored. I like to do new things. I like to make new things happen. Um, so it's, it's, it's worked out quite well for me. Some of the projects that, um, I mean, you, you helped me with, with um, house purchasing and house selling, um, which is the normal domestic thing. Um, but also I started buying houses uh, on behalf of charities 
including one which I bought of 15 million. You know, I mean, this, this, these are significant um, changes in, in, the, in, in, in scale as far as I'm concerned. And it seemed like growing another business um, with the school that I set up, which is the largest charitable project I did, 30 million in all, um, that took five years, um, 18 months between concept and opening, and then I stayed with it until it was, again, sustainable financially and, and managerially, could, could be on its own. And now I go there as an honoured visitor. Uh, I still do take potential potential donors there, of course, which is always what it, every charity is always very keen on those those introductions, but to me it's it's like like a business, and I took I call them projects. Um, some are small, um, most of them are over in six figures, um, because there are lots of people who can put a ten thousand pound commitment into a project. Um, I, I, I the Oxford Internet Institute. I put in over 10 million and there was nothing there. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm enormously proud of that, partly because it's in information technology and it seems right and proper that the money that I made in the IT industry, some of it should go back. Um, and it's proved very successful. It's a world renowned now. Oh, it's, it seems a long time ago now. But it, it's fascinating again to hear that guidance point around, I care about this and I'm going to make things happen. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you how you stay involved in the project? So you, you mentioned a few moments ago that obviously you stay with the project and you describe them as projects until they, they become self-sufficient. Do you, do you drive decision-making? Do you uh, actively seek out fellow donors? What, what, what sort of roles have you played in, in the various causes you've supported? I think the main thing I do is set the culture and while I'm still there, that's pretty firm. Yeah. And even after I've left, I'm told that the, the, the trustees tend to think, what would Steve do in this situation, which is, is, is a nice, strong culture. Uh, or it may be, a, may be a weakness to keep doing the same thing. I don't know. Um, with one charity, the Kingwood Trust, um, I've do, done relatively little in the recent years. Um, I've just, um, they've got a fundraising um, event um, in December um, and I'm going to that and I shall circulate and um, I've written the foreword for the prospectus, not prospectus, the foreword for the program for, for, the, uh, for the evening and so on. And that's the sort of, um, I, I went and spoke at their 25th anniversary event um, so it's quite quite hands off, um, partly of course because emotionally I find it the most difficult to yes. to go to because it's where my drowsy was, um, but also it, it it was the first and I didn't quite know how to get that relationship right. With the school, um, I stayed with it pretty well full time for five years. Um, when I say full-time, I mean that was the only thing that I did was work, get that school up. Um, it was quite 
challenging for me. It, it, the sheer responsibility of the property, you know, to own everything between earth and sky. Um, and, I, and I learned a lot about property and about when you shoot rooks and, and how, when the badgers come out and, and what to do about the, the, the hornet's nests and, and things like that. Um, Sounds more like a farm. Well, it, it, it's, 50, it's 55 acres, you yes. know, it is, it's, it's got a land. A lot of wildlife, yes. And I stayed on the board for some years. Now I just take potential visitors there, and I do that probably about twice a year. I think this year I've only been once, um, because my network is is dying out, so to speak, and, and I, notice, I notice when they... Um, Honours Committee comes out, I always used to go through it, and I'd go, oh, yeah, no, him, oh, yeah. Now I don't know any of them. They're all sort of brand new new people. So one is conscious that uh, one is moving out of, out of the field. Um, with Autistica, I do a lot of fundraising for them because all my speeches go uh, are paid for and goes direct to Autistica. So I'm a significant donor um, for them still because their need for finance is quite different. They get some money, they, 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 they fund research. They get some more money, they fund some more research. So they're always top topping up, whereas the school is, really has to look after itself. Yes, yeah. um, and it's a 20 million pound business now. Um, it's going through some difficult problems. And um, I, I talk with the chairman regularly, um, about every two months. Just to support? Yes. Um, I'm beginning to find that he's using me more like a non-executive director, and I don't really want that because right. I don't feel competent as a non-executive director anymore. Um, maybe he just really values your opinion. Well, this is right, and may maybe sometimes he's going to go back and say, well, Steve thinks this, you know, or what, what he does with it, I don't know. We just spend a few hours together. I'm sure it's invaluable still. Otherwise, he wouldn't keep doing it. But otherwise, he wouldn't yeah, do it, exactly. would he? Exactly. Um, Steve, when so the school you set up, you you I remember you bought what was a closing prep school in a very great hurry, um, Prior's Court School. It was part of a of a of the a school that was otherwise established in Bath, and the deal was done very quickly, as you say, and you had a steep learning curve. But when you, going back to a comment I made earlier, which is you've always felt you wanted to make a difference. What was the gap you saw that you thought needed filling that Prior's Court? Well, it sounds very emotional, but Prior's Court is the school that I would have liked for my Giles. The pupil profile is Giles, profound autism, um, challenging behaviour. Um, the school employs over 500 staff for 100 pupils. You know, because the, the, the ratio, and, and it is 24 7, and it is 52 weeks in the year. So it's. Um, so it was a, a need built from personal experience. Yes, it needed doing. Um, somebody's got to do it. Yeah. Um, and um, I think I have always learned that it's no use waiting. You know, they should do it for it. And I will still lobbying, lobby for more schooling and better schooling. I'm just currently involved with. Um, uh, set up in Scotland that is going to be a Kingwood-like project and I'm going to be advising them for that. And it, I mean, they're in Scotland, but with um, Zoom, we can manage perfectly well. 
Yes. And they're coming down to see some of the Kingwood homes and so on. So I'm still involved in the, but the, I, I work a, a light part time now. Um, I'm conscious that my productivity is, is, is reduced. Um, so it takes me longer to do everything. But um, I do um, enjoy my work. It's, it's not just something I do when I'd rather be doing something else. I, that's what I do. That is what I, who I am. That is what you enjoy. And I enjoy it, and I look forward to it, and I wake up every morning. What, you know, I'm so lucky to have something to get up for each morning because most women my age, on their own, don't don't have that. Well, that passion is is obvious. The passion is obvious. So, Steve, after Prior's Court, and I, I, I remember going through that process with well, you, and you, I think you served on I the, did. On I was the, I was one of your first four governors, right. I think. Um, and I mean, I'm very lucky. I've acting for the people I act for I've been privileged enormously privileged to represent some extraordinary clients and from many I I've been lucky enough to I think to learn quite a lot as well and I think I remember your laser-like focus on two things which is the people have we got the right people to get get this show off on the road and then successful and the finances that's I can remember all those meetings about I sustainable finances. finances well sustain <laughs> sustainable finances yes. which was, it comes down to pupil numbers yeah. where you're talking in that case yeah. about local authority grants in many cases a few private pupils but not many and it was just interesting watching your mental process around how to make that sustainable and as you say as as with other projects when it had reached that point you started with to withdraw and you moved in to onto Autistica, which you founded, mm. which is, which is about autism research, effectively, rather than education or care. And I just wonder if you want again, what was the hole you felt you were filling there with Autistica? Autism at that time was considered to be a psychological um, disorder, um, which was partially brought on by poor parenting. It's not very nice for the parents, um, and it, intrinsically, I felt it, that was wrong. Um, the amount of research being done in the autism field was very small in the UK, more in the States, um, a little bit in Europe. Um, but um, I thought Britain has a high reputation for, for research generally, and that to start a research organisation focused on autism was a, a, a job worth 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 doing. I served on a, an American research charity for three years in order to find out much more what it was like, and then set, set the charity up, um, thinking really in terms of pure research. Um, one of our ma first major projects was the Autism Brain Bank, uh, which is now the largest brain bank. Uh, in the world, uh, it has uh, a refrigerated store of tiny slivers of brain with records saying what sort of, which part of the brain they come from um, and what sort of person they, ca they, they belong to. Um, and that, that is, has made a terrific difference. Those, that material is used worldwide. I think seventeen thousand experiments, or sort of one sort or another. Um, so you know, it, it, it's a game changer. Um, now, MRI scanning is getting much more better. It's getting much more improved, um, and 
the value of the brain bank may go down over the next years and perhaps even become obsolete. Uh, but that was the sort of project that I, I, I envisaged. I, I, I come from a research background. What has happened is that um, Autistica has focused much more on applied research, on practical problems of um, finding out um, why um, people with autism um, die significantly younger than the rest of the population or even the disabled population, um, why um, autistic women die before autistic men, which is not what you'd expect, um, why there's a big overlap between people who have autism and develop or have epilepsy and those who are epileptic and develop and are also autistic. Um, autism comes, it is a congenital um, disorder, but it only exhibits itself um, at, at later ages, usually around about two and a half, three, three and a half, sometimes much later. So it, it, it's having a big impact in, in the projects that it funds, researchers that it funds at different universities, um, but it's also having a bigger impact on um, in its campaigning. They're really quite professional about their campaigning now. And I'm delighted when I read in the press that what the government is saying, and I can hear Autistica's words through and through. The aim is that the people with autism should have longer, healthier, and happier lives. Very simple aim. So it's changed a lot, which wasn't what I was expecting or for that matter wanting, um, but it, it's doing great. And I mean, it is the most strategic of the charities. Yes. It's the smallest, yes. but it's by far the most strategic. And I'm very proud of it. As you should be. Yeah, I As think so. Yes. Um, I've got one more serious question to ask before we, we have a few fun questions to finish off with. And, and it's something that I'm sure anyone listening to this podcast will be thinking, having heard some of the earlier stories. So you can genuinely be described as a, a workplace revolutionary in the positive yes. sense. Yes. Um, we're now seeing more change in the workplace, ironically, through information technology, which is another passion and something you're an expert in. But it's also been driven by Brexit. And then, of course, most significantly, perhaps, the pandemic and the impacts of it, which has change the way we work and as someone who manages a business and many other people listening will think the same thing what excites you about the changes in terms of uh, pandemic induced IT led flexibility well, it's more, and what worries you well I'm, I'm more amused that in a matter of months um, businesses managed to move to home working and flexi working and flexi time uh, where I'd been shouting and jumping up and down about it for years. Um, so I'm amused by that. That's not been lost on me, listening <laughs> to these answers, yes. Um, Does anything worry you about that change? Or do you think it's entirely positive? Well, I think that it's, it seems to be settling into some sort of hybrid working, which um, I think is a happy compromise. Um, certainly working hours have historically always come down, 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 down. So I think a lot of companies are thinking now in terms of four and a half day working week uh, and much of that done at home. Uh, certainly staff uh, are, and you know, staff are a king at the moment because there's so few of them. Um, staff are de demanding home working to, to a great extent. 
um, and it's, it's making a difference to where people live in the country. Um, the Scottish project that I'm involved with at the moment is based on the fact that with Zoom, people can do their work from Aberdeen or wherever it is. Um, and uh, at the same time, um, their partner would be prepared to move out from the home counties into a beautiful part of UK. So so the rest of us have finally caught up with you. That's, That's what you're telling yeah, me. Yeah, I try not to be too yeah. snug about yeah. it. <laughs> Steve, can I ask about something which is connected to what's surrounding us, which obviously our listeners can't see, but, but a constant uh, throughout the time I've known you, and I'm sure from long before, has been your passion for art and modern art. Where does that come from? And, and what is it expressing? I think it's similar to mathematics, the study of patterns. Um, it, it, it's balm to the soul. Um, I get a great deal from my paintings, which are almost entirely abstract. I also give art and to the Royal Academy of Engineering. I gave them... I commissioned and gave a portrait of Prince Philip, who was their president, um, just commissioned last year. Or was it this year, Lynn? Yeah, it was a couple of years ago. A couple of years yes, ago. Was. Yeah, I was, I was thinking of um, Derek Pavaricini, who's an autistic savant, and uh, he is um, at Roehampton University, so I've just commissioned a lovely... Um, painting of him at the piano um, for, for the university. Um, so I do that quite often. So I get the pleasure of the Foundling Museum, um, any, any uh, opportunity, the, the Worshipful Company of Information Technologists. I've probably done about 10 or a dozen of, the, of these. And I get a great pleasure in commissioning, um, in, in being part of the creative process um, and then being able to see it hang in a public place. Sharing your passions once again. Yes, I think yes. so. Yes. yes. You gave an extraordinary collection of modern art and in particular sculpture to Prior's yes. Court School, uh, I remember, and it was very much part of your ethos that the school had to look beautiful and be beautiful to be in. What I wanted was the school should be the very best it could be intellectually in its teaching, um, in its care, um, in its sport, in its performing arts, in its use of land. They, they have farmland, they have an artisan bakery. Um, and the art comes in um, as another dimension for children who have very little. Um, they don't read, they don't speak. Um, so. To, to, to reach them emotionally, the pictures have an impact. Uh, we did, I did fund a PhD study uh, as to the impact of the sculptures uh, on people. And there were some studies done as to how they, how they reacted, which was quite varied. Um, some reacted very tactilely and, and touching them all over. Others ignored them. Um, others licked them. Um, so. Th but, but they got some reaction, um, which was quite... The, the Prowse Court co collection is very good. And I've also given quite a bit to the... Um, what's it called? Hos uh, paintings, paintings in hospitals. 
paintings in hospitals is they they promised they were going to change their name because it's not just hospitals, but they never did, of course. I should have got it in writing. Um, <laughs> you learn a lot about people when you're working in the not-for-profit area that you know they will say a lot, they want the collection, and yes, they will change it to the, the title, but uh, they, they do have now um, paintings that are suitable for care homes for autism people and so on. Surprisingly enough, when you make the place beautiful, the wear and tear on it is no worse than any public area, whereas you would, you would expect them to be destroying things all the time. But it, it, it sums up the, that, that quest for excellence, not limiting yes. it, and that includes the environment yeah. in which yeah. the school occupies. I think one of the, the quest for, for excellence is, is in me as well. I, I always want to do things better this week than I did last week. Um, and I'm a learning person. I'm always trying to um, Im improve on, 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 on where I've got to. And that's not comfortable to live with, um, but it does give a certain uh, structure to the things that I do. Steve, can I ask one more serious and quite personal question before we go on to the slightly light-hearted ones, which is anyone that has read your book, Let It Go, or the biography that will sit next to this podcast will know that you arrived as a refugee in this country before the war. Um, it's a particularly poignant thing at the moment, given what is going on in Eastern Europe and the large volume of refugees in the world. How much has that been a part of you and dictated your life, do you think? That's a very insightful question, Bob. It's been an enormous part of my life. I'm driven by that, right, even today. Um, I think all of us are formed by the first few years of our life. And I had this massive transition when I was five to be sent um, to a new country without my parents, to foster parents. Um, new language, new food, new new everything. Um, and that has given me an ability to um, cope with change and that um, I even enjoy change and that's useful in the digital world. But l less healthily, it's made me conscious of that I was, people were saying, aren't you lucky to be saved? Aren't you lucky to be saved? And indeed I was. Um, but it's made me realize that I have to make the life that I lead worth saving. And that has driven me and still does today. So I don't fritter my time away. Um, I try to do something worthwhile um, and develop myself um, in my own um, capabilities. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thank That's you very much. Um, moving from what was a very heartfelt and passionate answer to something a bit more lighthearted, and this first question, I can promise you, is not a loaded question, and you do not have to say that the answer relates to my, my good friend next to me, but what is the best piece of advice you ever received? Nice, simple one. Keep fixed costs down. <laughs> <laughs> Something everyone can look forward to applying at this point in time. It became I'm sure. my motto, keep fixed costs down. <laughs> Well, that's that's something that's simple and repeatable. Um, what's the favourite thing about what you're doing at the moment? 
or the people that I work with, um, the the places that I go to. I do a lot of public speaking to raise money. I mean, they're, they're almost social events. They're, they're great pleasure. Um, I try to be better speaker this month than I was last. Um, so it, it's still nerve-wracking. Uh, but all in all, um, I do it because I enjoy it. Fantastic. Um, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? It'll be all right. Reassurance. Reassurance, yes. And finally, and this is always my favourite question, I'll be fascinated by this, who would play you in a film about your life? Am I allowed to answer this? <laughs> it doesn't have to be the I person who is playing you. Right. Yes. Well, I'd, I'd like somebody like Judy, Judy Dench to play the, the mature um, Steve, I think. Um, it can be like The Crown. You can have different incarnations. Different ones, so. but yes. <laughs> Um, somebody like Saran Jones, who played Gentleman Jack. Um, yes. And she's oddly enough quite physically like me. Again, big teeth, big smile. Um, and, and I could sort of almost imagine her doing it. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, there's a couple that we should be lining up at some stage. Um, it's my job to try and bring this fascinating conversation to a close. So I, I think the... The themes from today, uh, aside from the fact it's been absolutely fascinating to hear the stories, the various iterations and the achievements, but the themes for me have been innovation, constant improvement, passion for what you do, um, coping with change. I love the phrase that you enjoy, enjoy change. It's something that everyone's most fearful of, but someone who runs headlong into embracing it I think probably signifies a huge amount of what's driven your success. You believe in your principles and those guide you through everything you do and driven by a life worth saving, which I think is particularly poignant. But anyone who's listened to your answers today and the fascinating conversation will entirely understand that you have done that and continue to do that. So thank you, Dame Stephanie. Um, thank you, Bart. And thank you all for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this client conversation. And until the next one, goodbye. Thank you for listening to Client Conversations with Dame Stephanie Shirley. We'd like to let you know about another episode of Client Conversations with Sir Martin Smith, founder and philanthropist. Click on the link in the show notes to find out more.